Tom Woods Show, episode 2305. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you enjoy The Tom Woods Show, it's time to go to the next level. And next level, Tom Woods, is libertyclassroom.com. This is where my friends and I teach all the stuff you did not get in your conventional education. History, economics, and more the way it ought to be taught with all the content they left out or distorted. Check it out at libertyclassroom.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. We are here for part two of our conversation with Thorsten Polite. And if you're thinking, oh, but I missed part one, I can't possibly listen to this. That is not true. It's absolutely not true. I'm going to run through a quick summary of the principles we covered in part one. And then now today we're going to apply them to real life situations and real life plots. Actually, we couldn't use that word plots against us in the monetary sphere. So welcome back, Thorsten. Yeah, thank you very much, Tom. It's a great pleasure. The book we're talking about, of course, that we got into last time is called The Global Currency Plot. The thing is, I'm looking now, I have the subtitle somewhere, but in your book, it's hard to find. There we go. Okay. How the Deep State Will Betray Your Freedom and How to Prevent It. Well, that is pretty compelling. Now, again, as I mentioned last time, this is a short book. It does not take that long to read it. We have a lot of long books in our tradition, as you know, Thorsten, many long books. This one really packs a punch. There's a lot of very, very good and useful and easy to understand information in it. And it's exclusive of the index under 160 pages. But last time we started with some fundamentals. And if I may, I'd like to just review the gist of it, which was that we began with human beings and the fact that they are purposeful. They're pursuing goals. They're using scarce means to pursue those goals. And we built up in standard Austrian fashion from there to higher and higher levels of understanding. We introduced the indispensable institution of private property because in order to employ means to achieve our ends, we have to have some control over those means. And that control is what property is all about. If you own something, you have control over how it is used. So we talked about that. We talked about the division of labor as an outgrowth of the fact that people are unequal in talents, interests, and so on. And so I specialize in what I'm best at, you specialize in what you're best at, and we wind up better off than if we had all tried to produce on our own. So what we're building up is a vision of society in which people pursue their goals, but in a way, in a kind of cooperative situation with others even though I'm not actively working with somebody else on my goal, what that other person does indirectly helps me reach my goals. That person's place in the division of labor can be a help to me because that person produces things that I could not produce or I would have to consume a vast amount of resources to produce. And so the vision that we are constructing here is one of a voluntary array of exchanges that is what we more or less call society. And what we're also describing is peaceful. It is describing a situation in which I own myself and my property, you own yourself and your property, and the exchanges we make occur only if both sides agree to them. And then finally, we got into the, we introduced the state, which operates on entirely different principles, which is coercively funded, which is not based on these voluntary principles. 
and which is parasitic on the society over which it rules. So I wanted to start from there because if we look at the state in this way as an institution that's parasitic upon society, rather than in the more popular rendition, we're supposed to think of the state as the institution that makes society itself possible, well, then we can look with a critical eye at what the state does when it comes to money, which is, of course, a big part of a book called The Global Currency Plot. And I I am leading up to a question here, Thorsten, but again, just to paint the picture for everybody, it makes sense that an institution like this that does not produce any goods, that has no voluntary revenues, would want to have some control over the monetary system because having no resources, it nevertheless wants something. It wants to have some way to get what it wants. And by having some control over the production of money or being very close to the production of money, it can siphon resources away from private actors like you and me and toward itself more effectively. So that's where I want to start today. Do you have any objections to that summary I just gave? No, it's wonderful, Tom. I think it's a very concise summary of what's in part one of my book. And I think it's important to underline that it's a theoretical exercise, so to speak. And as you said in your introduction, I think it helps to make sense of the real world, what's really going on to give proper interpretation of the plot, as you put it, which is unfolding before our eyes. So let's move on. Now, again, when we think of things in this way, it will become easier to understand why a move toward the euro, as opposed to the various national currencies that existed before, is a move in a direction that states would want. So I want to get to the euro in a minute, because, of course, the euro was portrayed to people as being a source of convenience. It's much more convenient to have one currency. We know what the arguments for it are. But before we get into the euro, can you say something about the Bretton Woods system that really was introduced at the end of World War II? What was that all about and why wouldn't the governing powers have simply returned to a gold standard? Well, the story starts basically with World War I. For instance, in Europe, as soon as World War I started in August 1914, many countries which had a gold standard basically ended the gold standard. Take, for instance, the German Empire. In August 1914, the German Reichsbank, the central bank, stopped the redeemability of the outstanding banknotes into gold coins. And you know what happened with the German Reichsmark? It went under, it was completely destroyed in 1923 through hyperinflation. And after World War I, many countries that had abandoned the gold standard did not return to gold. What they put into place was a fiat currency system. The great exception was basically the United States of America. They kept the link of the dollar to gold. And then World War II set in and again... Many countries inflated their currencies. The purchasing power of many currencies went down. And in 1944, so before the war ended, 144 nations came together in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, and they decided a new 
monetary order for post-World War II. And the idea was to have the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. The U.S. dollar was still backed with gold. At that time, you had to pay $35 per ounce of gold. All other currencies were fixed with a fixed exchange rate against the dollar. They were convertible into dollar. And so indirectly, they were linked to gold. So it was actually, it was not a gold standard. It was a dollar gold exchange standard, so to speak. And the world did not really return to gold. It was a pseudo gold standard, as I like to put it. And the dollar was the world's reserve currency, and it is still the world's currency. When you talk to investors and savers, the dollar is still number one. And that dates back actually to 1944, when the system of Bretton Woods was agreed. Was there a fatal flaw from the start in the Bretton Woods system? Yeah, as I said, it was a pseudo-gold standard. People no longer had gold circulating. There were no gold coins, and the transactions in gold were basically confined to international central bank transactions. So people in the street did not have any gold. For instance, in the United States in 1934, the Roosevelt administration basically confiscated people's gold. People had to hand in their gold coins and bars, and they, in return, got paper dollars. So gold was no longer circulating, and it was upon the U.S. to run the system, so to speak. The U.S., of course, was in a rather favorable position. The dollar was widely accepted around the world, and the redeemability of the dollar was confined basically to other nation states' central banks' actions. So the U.S. started printing up ever greater amounts of dollar notes, which were not backed by physical gold, to finance their aggressive foreign policies in the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s. And then people woke up, in particular the French, they literally brought their U.S. dollars to New York in exchange of physical gold, and other nations followed. And what happened was the United States had an outflow of physical gold to such an extent that it was feared that the U.S. would default on its payment obligations. And so on 15th of August 1971, U.S. President Richard Nixon, in a TV, late-night TV announcement basically said that the administration had stopped the gold redeemability of the dollar. And that was the beginning, the starting point, so to speak, of an unbacked dollar money system. And that affected, of course, many other nations. So the US dollar with this unilateral decision put the world on a fiat money system. And that was basically really the end of the gold backing of our money. I want to move ahead to the issue of the euro, because I suppose the system that you and I would prefer for money in the world would be one in which there is complete separation of money and state. And that would very likely give rise to something like a gold standard. And we can also discuss Bitcoin if we like. But in other words, the idea would be that it's not optimal to have a great many currencies, because this 
obstructs the main purpose of money, which is to facilitate exchange. And if there are many currencies, then that becomes a problem. I have to convert my money into another money. So over time, there would be a tendency toward a universal money because that would be the most convenient kind of money. Yeah. And so what I think happened with the euro, let's put it this way. The general public was told, look, you don't like the clunky system we have now where you travel from country to country and you have to convert your money. Wouldn't it be more convenient if we had a single currency that would be usable throughout this entire range of countries? And we can agree it is inconvenient. But if that was the problem you had, you could solve it with gold or you could solve it with a non-state money. So the introduction of the euro, why would we, people who believe in the analysis that you've given in these two episodes, why would we prefer the system of national fiat currencies that existed before the euro over the euro? Because if I had to choose between these two bad systems, I would go back to having Italy, having the lira, and so on and on. Yeah, well, Tom, I think, as you rightly put it, people were told that it is optimal to have a single currency in Europe for facilitating trade and financing transactions. And that is right. I mean, it's much better to have fewer currencies or optimal is to use one currency for all people rather than have a variety of different national currencies. So the people were told it's much better to have one currency over a great variety of fiat currencies in Europe. And that was a selling argument. And as you pointed out, economically speaking, that is correct. And the crucial question, however, is who is actually making the choice what money is? And in a free market in money, people voluntarily agree about what they would love to use as money. And presumably, people would go for gold or silver or a crypto unit. That would be a decision made by the voluntary exchanges among people. Now, the single currency in Europe has a political purpose. I think it's fair to say that the introduction of the euro was a campaign against the currency choice. For political reasons, governments didn't like the variety of national fiat currencies. For instance, if the Italian government produced very high inflation, the Italians had the chance to take their lira and exchange them against the DMARC, which back then was considered a sound currency. So the Italian government would create a capital outflow and that would put a disciplinary effect on its inflationary policy. And to cut a long story short, Governments, states do not like that people have a choice in currency. And so they preferred to monopolize, to centralize money production, and they succeeded in doing so. And in January 1999, basically, they issued the euro and the euro replaced all national currencies of the countries participating in the single euro currency area. I guess I sort of understand how this benefits them. And by them, I mean the shadowy people who rule over us. But (laughs) I could see that some people might have a complaint about the euro that might be different from other people's complaints. So countries where the governments had a more inflationary money 
might not want the discipline of the euro. I could imagine that. But that wouldn't be my complaint about the euro. My complaint would be that the fewer currencies there are in the world, the fewer options money holders have. And given that in a fiat system, there's no physical constraint on money creation on the part of the central banks, I have to worry about inflation. I have to worry about prices going up. And if there are other currencies I can flee into, then that's good for me. It gives me choices. But so the fewer options I have to flee, the worse for me, but the better for them. Is that roughly correct? I think that's a fair description. If you have a currency choice, you can escape the misuse of money printing of an inflationary policy in one country. You have still the chance to escape. And the fewer currencies there are, the fewer are the chances that you can escape the inflationary impact. And governments, of course, like to inflate. It's a process of stealth in terms of thievery, so to speak. You can get hold of the resources of the people, and most people do not really realize that they're being taxed via inflation. And as we just outlined, if you have a chance to get away from inflationary money into sound form of money, that disciplines the inflationary country. And here we have the strong incentive for governments to monopolize not only the national money production, but also to form a cartel with other states with the objective to do away with the currency choice. And that is, I think, exactly what happened in Europe. But can you explain a little bit? I mean, if suppose I was living in Italy in 1970, and I don't know what the inflation rate in Italy was in 1970, but I bet it was higher than in Germany. But the fact that the Deutschmark might have been a sounder currency doesn't mean I can go grab a few and buy a loaf of bread at the supermarket with it. So how is that an option for me? How is that a check on domestic inflation? Money has various functions. One function is the means of payment function, and the other function is the store of value function. What you can observe in countries where there is high inflation, people still, for instance, these days in Turkey, where you have inflation of 100% or so at the moment, people still use the lira for day-to-day -day supermarket purchases, going to the grocery store, etc. But they do no longer use it as a store of value. They would use gold or the US dollar, so exchange the lira against gold and the dollar and use these media as the store of value no longer the inflationary currency. And that is exactly what happened in the 1970s and the 1980s, where people from around Europe, when there were periods of high inflation, that was always accompanied by a run into the D-Mark, getting out of the French franc or the Italian lira and into the D-Mark, not for making using the D-Mark in Italy for making purchases, but to have it as a store of value. Hey, folks, it's time to take just a minute for Woods to improve your life yet again. Have you lost count by now? For three years, I have been a happy customer of Happily Date Boxes. Every month, you get a box in the mail with a different theme 
for a date that you can enjoy in the comfort of your own home. And it gives you an opportunity to spend quality time with your significant other, even with your busy schedule. Just within the past week, my wife and I enjoyed the most recent of these. And this one had a morning theme. So it came with coffee. It came with the ingredients to make crepes, which we did together. As always, it comes with a curated custom date playlist, which we use on Spotify, a series of conversation starters, which we always enjoy. And then it included this time a game we played where we had to write down our answers to different questions about ourselves and then try to anticipate what the other person's answers were, which is hilarious, by the way. Then there was a bunch of other fun stuff, trivia, crossword puzzle, Mad Libs, other boxes. We've done crafts. We've done an exercise where they say you're on a desert island and here are 10 possible things that you might have in your possession. Rank them in order of how useful they would actually be to you. Very interesting and fun stuff. And if you are the one who comes up with the idea, your significant other is going to think you are absolutely amazing and you do not have to say, Woods told me to do this. You just say, I just happen to be a really, really thoughtful person. Well, take 50% off your first date at tomwoods.com slash date. That's 50% off your first date at tomwoods.com slash date. You have a chapter here that surprised me a bit because I guess I didn't know very much about it, but chapter 18. In chapter 18, you talk about cooperation, informal, let's say, informal cooperation among the central banks of the world. Now, at the end of the chapter, you say, This informal cooperation is nowhere near the kind of regime some of them would want in which there's simply one currency for the entire world, and then you don't have to worry at all ever about a recalcitrant central bank that might not cooperate. But what form does this cooperation among central banks in the world take? Well, central banks coordinate their policies. For instance, the central bank governors, the councillors, in close contact with each other. They're on the telephone. They communicate on a daily basis. They inform each other about what steps to be taken, what policy steps have to be taken. And also, for instance, in recent years, they engage in the so-called swap liquidity agreements by which, for instance, the U.S. central banks lends freshly created U.S. dollars to the European Central Bank because the European Central Bank cannot produce U.S. dollars. But, for instance, a number of commercial banks in Europe are in desperate need of dollar funding, which they cannot obtain at reasonable interest rates in credit markets. And so, basically, the U.S. Fed provides these dollars to prevent market turmoil or even illiquid European banks, and that amounts basically to a unified monetary policy, which is already in place. And for instance, when the Silicon Valley Bank on 10th of March this year went belly up in the US, a couple of days later, to prevent turmoil in the banking industry, the Fed reopened these swap liquidity agreements. I think they are called liquidity swap agreements. That's the right term. So the central banks coordinate their policy, and that is, I think, very, very close to a single world monetary policy. Why do governments seem to want to discourage the use of cash and perhaps ideally abolish cash? Why is cash, even fiat cash, 
a threat to them? Well, yeah, using cash allows you to engage in transactions the state wouldn't know about. Or to put it differently, it provides the money users with anonymity. And that is, of course, something governments don't like because they fear they don't get their fair share in terms of taxing people. And there's another incentive to do away with cash, namely, when there's cash, you can withdraw your money from the banking sector. Without cash, there's no chance to get your money out of the banks. And if you think about a world where there is no cash for people, the money is actually locked in the banking balance sheet. The government can then make the central bank putting the interest rates into negative territory. And so you get expropriated. It's very easy to improve the financial situation of banks by wiping out their liabilities in form of site, time, and savings deposits. But if you have cash, people can start a bank run, can withdraw their cash and escape this form of expropriation. And these two explanations hopefully make sense in terms of explaining why there is a strong desire amongst governments including special interest groups like the payment industry, credit card providers, etc. They have a strong desire to abolish cash. So if we think back to the first episode, and in fact, even to the summary at the beginning of this one, when we look at society, what do we have? We have a division of labor and people engaged in voluntary exchange. And we talked about how, and of course, Carl Menger is one of the pioneers here, how money emerges from this because people perceive the advantage to having a highly marketable good that can facilitate exchanges more easily than barter. And so we see how a single worldwide monetary system emerges spontaneously just from people's perception of their self-interest. But when you introduce the state with its coercive nature, the fact that it produces nothing, it has no resources other than what it siphons from the private sector, it's no surprise that it will want a very different kind of monetary system than the one that would emerge naturally and spontaneously out of free individuals who are making voluntary exchanges. The state will want a kind of money that it can use as a way to siphon resources toward itself. And so we're seeing examples of that but also that's why even, as we've said, cash is still not the ideal money for the state because it still provides us with some financial privacy. That is something that, again, we would want. If we were in a stateless society, we would want to have a money that gives us some privacy. But the state doesn't want that. And not to mention, in the United States, they got rid of the $1,000 bill. And the getting rid of the $1,000 bill makes cash clunkier to use. Yeah. for large transactions. Yeah. Well, that's not an accident. They did that because they want us making the large transactions through a trackable banking system. Exactly. For instance, in the euro area, in 2016, the European Central Bank ended issuing the 500 euro note, that was the largest banknote circulating, in an effort, as you say, to make cash more clunky. And I think it's fair to say, I mean, there are various examples that would show us that they're making progress of ending cash, of 
preventing people using cash for day-to-day -day transactions and to force them into electronic banking. You have a chapter on proposals for a world currency. Now, most of these proposals, or I would say maybe all of them, seem pretty unlikely. Now, the U.S. dollar, I suppose, has been, in a sense, maybe a de facto world currency, but not in terms of people's day-to-day -day transactions. They're still using their national currencies or the euro. But most of these proposals, with the exception of the dollar, seem rather far-fetched and unlikely to be implemented. Or am I wrong? Well, as you say, there are a number of proposals for a world currency. For instance, the banker, that was a concept pushed by John Maynard Keynes in the 1940s, the UNITAS, the US dollar, you mentioned that already, the INTOR concept put forward by the Canadian economist Robert Mandel, or even Libra, the payment concept favored by Facebook. And there are various concepts floating around. And you're rightly saying at the moment, it doesn't look plausible that any of these proposals for a world currency could be realized. But we are talking about the logical consequences of having a state a coercive apparatus, which is expanding internally and externally. We have the situation that states form cartels, and there's a clear tendency towards establishing a single world government. And the logical consequence of that is that there is an effort, there is an attempt to do exactly what happened in Europe, namely to merge as many currencies as possible into one single currency. And Tom, again, as things stand, it doesn't seem likely and plausible. But when we look back, let's say, to the 1930s, when you talk to people about taking away their gold, people wouldn't believe such a thing could happen. Just a decade ago, if you had talked to people saying they will take away your cash, people wouldn't believe it. And now we have a logical consequence which unfolds and it says that the logical consequence of having a national fiat currency, having competing fiat currencies, the logical consequence, the evolution, the underlying evolution points towards setting up a single world currency. And I can imagine, Tom, there's one concept, namely the euro concept, that could be implemented relatively easily. For instance, the special drawing rights from the International Monetary Fund provide a vehicle to produce such a single world currency. It would start by fixing or managing national exchange rates against the dollar, keeping them fixed for quite some time, and then to do exactly what happened in Europe at a certain point in time, the exchange rates will be irrevocably fixed. and. There you go. Then you have your single world currency managed by, let's say, a number of central banks. And it can be done, I think. And of course, you have to have the right decision to do such a thing. And such a situation could arise in the next global financial and economic crisis. Let me ask you this. In our lifetimes, it is unlikely that we will get the monetary system that you and I want. So I guess I have two questions. First, can you describe what the monetary system you and I want would look like 
And second, failing that, if we can't have that monetary system, what is the most plausible system that we could at least live with out of the remotely plausible available options? I think there are only two ways for people to cooperate. On the one hand, you have voluntary exchange, and the alternative is coercion and violence. And I think, Tom, you and I, we prefer a peaceful society based on voluntary cooperation and exchange. And such a system would actually imply free markets, free markets for books, free markets for cars, free markets for food, and a free market for money, where people have a choice. You have the freedom to provide your fellow people with a good that these fellow people would voluntarily like to use as money. And I have the freedom to choose the money which I think serves my purposes best. That is the concept of a free market in money. And presumably, people would go for gold or silver or crypto unit. And the free market would provide various financial services. You could digitalize the use of money. But there's no central authority, no one who's got a monopoly on the production of that money. And I think this would work just perfectly. And if we don't get that, if we stick to the current system, I'm afraid that the tendencies that can be observed already and can be theoretically explained, and I tried to do that in my book, will lead towards a concentration of fewer and fewer monies. And at the end, there will be a single world currency run by a single world central bank. And I think that is a dystopia because it would open up a huge potential for misusing that fiat currency monopoly, and it would result in very negative effects. It would actually propel many countries around the world into socialism, which, as we know from Ludwig von Mises, cannot work and won't work. It would restrict our freedoms. It would reduce the material well-being. And I try to some extent in my book to inform people about these tendencies and to make them aware that there's an alternative to state-sponsored and state-controlled money monopolies, and that is a free market in money. Well, I am going to, of course, link to your book, The Global Currency Plot, at tomwoods.com slash 2305. I would put it up there with other of the books that you recommend when people are just getting started, but it can benefit people who are just getting started and people who have been around the Mises Institute for a while, because it really puts all the pieces together in a very convenient and easily understood way. I would also like to link on the show notes page to um, something that I think will be nicely supplemental, and that is some remarks delivered by our mutual friend Jeffrey Herbener, who is a professor at Grove City College, and he was asked to testify before Ron Paul's Monetary Policy Subcommittee years ago, yeah. and he delivered mm -hmm. what I think is the single most radical testimony ever delivered before Congress. I could be wrong. Maybe there's some crazy person out there who said something more radical, but Jeff, in front of those congressmen, explained what a monetary system with no state involvement would look like and how the money would get produced 
who would produce it? Because where does the money come from? What is there a company that makes the money? Well, as a matter of fact, yes. <laughs> so Jeff went into that in amazing detail, very persuasively. And I thought, boy, whoever showed up for that hearing got a lot more than he bargained for, as we say. Almost nobody could have been expecting anything like that. But on the other hand, it was a Ron Paul chosen witness offering testimony. So we have that. So I'm going to put that. But of course, your book, The Global Currency Plot, we'll put that up at tomwoods.com slash 2305 and urge people to check it out. As I say, you can read it in not very much time and you will be very pleased at how much information you learn and how easy it is to learn, especially compared to how little time you have to invest in it. So Thorsten, thanks once again for these episodes and for your great work. No, thank you very much, Tom. It was a great pleasure. And thank you very much for your generous evaluation of my book. And I think it's important and it encourages me having spoken to you because I think good ideas have a chance to replace bad ideas. And by informing people about good ideas, like having a free market in money, we can create a better world. So thank you very much for the invitation and to talk with you. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.